This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com slash audible. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution which sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to ProXPN.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me to Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. All right, we're live. Which means there's a time delay for the people in the chat, you lucky people. So we put some tweets out, and then I also did ask for questions in email. Do you want to just talk about what we've got going on these days and see if people have questions eventually? That's cool. Sure. So, Reuven, you were talking before we got the call started about the situation that you're in with. Is it John Bryce as far as leaving them? (laughs) Great great story about John Bryce. Like, my cousin worked years and years ago, because I said to him, what kind of Israeli company, and it is an Israeli company, is called John Bryce. And the story is that when they first started, they were doing technical writing, and at that point, no one believed that an Israeli company could actually be good at high tech. So they purposely chose like a very non-Jewish, non-Israeli name, because if it's foreign, then it must be good, right? Uh, (laughs) And that just sort of stuck with the name, right? So I've been doing training for many years now, probably 15, 18 years. About five years now, I've been doing almost all of it through John Price, and I've reached the point where they're extremely nice, they pay on time, right? Always a good thing for uh, consulting clients to be. Uh, they're extremely flexible. They give me basically 100% carte blanche in terms of schedule, in terms of pitching, everything. As long as you know, the customers are happy, they're happy. But I reach the ceiling of what they can pay me. Beyond that, I need to be able to brand myself that I'm the guy you want to come to for training. Nah, oh, I'm the guy you want to come to for training. Call these marketing people, and they will negotiate with you. Uh, and I've had arguments with them over this over the years. Where their policy is, let's say you want to take a course, you cannot find out what it costs online, and you cannot sign up for it online. You must call their salespeople and negotiate a price with them, uh, and then pay with a purchase order, or credit card, or whatever. And this just like, must be frustrating, just from the the you know the lecture provider side. So I decided a few months ago, maybe even a year ago, that I was going to leave them and return to doing training on my own. And then basically before I had a chance to tell them, they filled my schedule through October. <laughs> so, so, and I kept saying, like, well, yeah, and I, I kept wanting to sort of put all the pieces in place. So at this point I now have between one and three weeks every month between now and October doing training for mostly Cisco, but also a few other companies like Apple and SanDisk and VMware, uh, both in Israel and in China. And don't seem to believe me that I want to leave them. Now, the thing is, because they keep sort of asking me for new courses, and the thing is I'm, I'm planning in the coming even week or two to sort of redo my website and rebrand as the person you want to come to for training. So it's very obvious I do it. I've set up, so I think Eric suggested on a previous podcast, you can book me, which I set up so that people, if they want to book courses, you can just say, these are the days I have available, 
choose from that. And I'm going to be relaunching my book as well. And I'm going to be sending an email to all the people who participated in my courses over the last three or four years saying, them, here's a coupon for my book. And just so you know, I'm still doing courses, but I'm doing it on my own. And I think the combination will be, I hope the combination will be, A, good sales of the book, uh, and B, for reminding them and remarking to them that I'm available for doing this sort of training. There are a lot of pieces of the puzzle that have to go on here, and the fact that John Bryce is the 900-pound gorilla in the Israeli training market means that I hope companies won't be scared to go with me, worried that they will take off one of their big training suppliers. I don't think that will happen, but that's definitely a, a possibility. That's been a big thing, and sort of the whole book relaunch and rebranding thing has been fun over the last week or two, and will continue to be fun. But I'm, I'm actually very, very excited, too. Yeah, that's great. It's super exciting. Yeah. Yep. I'm shocked that you have the email addresses. Oh, well, because I'm sneaky. So <laughs> the way it works is I do all of my own materials, which surprise the John Bryce people. Like, I gave a course once there at their offices in Tel Aviv, and in front of the John Bryce representative, I said to everyone, my policy is to email you the PDFs of the slides for each day that we're in class. And the representative said, wait, you can't do that. You don't have the rights to that. I said, sure I do. I wrote the material. She said, oh, really? Oh, that's surprising. <laughs> so basically my rule is everyone, everyone who wants to get the PDFs emails within the day. And what do you know? I have their email addresses. I can get them on LinkedIn. And so now I have probably a good several hundred people from the Israeli high-tech industry from a few companies who I know are interested in the, the, the topics that I teach. Wow. That's lucky. So, yes. Yes. I mean, it occurred to me, it was probably like two, three years ago that I finally realized I should be collecting these email addresses because yeah. there's no way that I was going to get them through, through any others. Yep. Um, here we go. We've got a, or I guess several questions already, which is good. One of you guys want to read them? Sure. Read them? I'll read it. Do you group your products and services into one big site to pull traffic, or do you think it's better to build them as their own brands? I could take that. Uh, I absolutely think it's better to break them up. If they don't create a product ladder for you, so if, they're, if they are essentially unrelated or they don't appeal to the same potential buyer, I would definitely break them up. Because if you don't do that, then you're going to dilute your positioning for on the big site. So I'm in the process of doing this, actually, because my main business is mobile strategy consulting, and lately I've been doing coaching and mentoring for like dev firms, web development firms. And I had those all on the same site, but it was super awkward because you put it in the nav, and then some director of mobile user experience from CVS comes to my page. Like I finally get someone like really big on my page, and they're like, oh, what's this mentoring? What's this? You know, and they climb in there, and it's completely... It's sales pages that aren't aren't directed to them, and it just there's just no way to handle it. So I'm I'm breaking those stuff. I took them out of my nav, uh, the coaching stuff out of my navigation, and I I'm started a new domain. I'm working on a website, probably launch it in March, that is specifically directed to that business, and you know that makes both businesses much more clean, and it allows you to send out like segmented emails and. Uh, even different tweets. Like if you're driving traffic to the site, you want the you want the person to, who clicks on the link to land on the site and be like, "Yes, this is exactly what I've been looking for," and not like, "Wait a second, what does this guy do?" So I, I feel <laughs> I feel really strongly that if the if the products don't appeal to the identical buyer, then you should split them out across different different landing pages or different sites at least. I'm willing to believe that, but I'm curious, like. Yes, having it all together on the same site might dilute your brand, 
but like it's still you, right? Like I mean, if I'm looking for Jonathan Stark, like you're doing these different things, and doesn't it then is it kind of weird? Like, well, am I looking for Jonathan Stark, the mobile consultant? Am I looking for Jonathan Stark, the uh, you know the the you know, for mentoring or coaching? Right. Like, how are people then supposed to find you easily, given that you've now sort of become this split personality online, as it were? Yeah, I know. It's weird because it's new for me. I've always been, I've never had the split personality online. I've always been, like, all about one thing in my mind. But lately, that thing that I've been all along has, I'm looking back on it and thinking, wow, that was pretty soft. It was pretty vague. And now that I'm really tightening it down to appeal to specific expensive problems with a particular target market, there's sort of two ways to look at it. One is that I do get a ton, like the majority of my traffic is a Google search for my name. So mm-hmm. apparently my reputation is big enough that people are coming to me. What they're coming to me for is up in the air. It could be a couple of different things. So I'm I'm actually considering on my homepage to be like, are you a you know, running a web firm looking for coaching? Mm-hmm. Are you uh, an enterprise looking for strategy, mobile strategy work? You know, or are you a web developer looking for training for like mobile web development, and then have those sort of pivot them off one direction or another? Not sure what I'm going to do about that. It's a good question. What I'm really tempted to do is just leave the Jonathan Stark name for what I'm already known for, which is mobile strategy, web, that kind of stuff, and then start the new thing without my name even. Just like start it almost as an experiment, as a brand new business, and do it more entrepreneurially, where I'm not binding myself to my personal identity to that brand and just let it not matter and just be like when people come to that site I put that I was behind it but not make it prominent and just be like look these problems can be solved and we can solve them for you you know what I mean so it kind of stands on its own yeah it it seems like it, it makes sense especially in the sense that if people are looking for you that's one thing but in a lot of cases your website is some kind of social proof on you being able to do a thing. And so people are going to be looking for the thing and not you. And that's that's where these other sites come in is because then they have the focus on whatever it is they're looking for as opposed to, you know, whatever else that you do or, you know, think you do. Yeah, that's my bet. My bet is basically that more people know what their problem is called than know my name and that I'm associated with that problem. So, yes, a lot of people search for my name, but what they're really looking for is a solution to a problem. So if they're also searching for that problem, the goal is to make those two different brands, if you will, pop up in the search results, and then searches for my name will be less important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the other thing is, is I think Google will play a different game if all of the pages on your website are all focused around the same thing. I think, I think so too, yeah. I think they oh. give you more credit for that. They do the same thing on YouTube you're more likely to get recognized or have your videos uh, related to other similar videos if they can figure out what your channel's about. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I'd say it's domain authority. If they know, like, you know, your site's all about mobile stuff, then they're more likely to weight you better in mobile searches versus if your site's about five different things. Google just thinks it's like Wikipedia where it's just a bunch of things, and, you know, you might not get the extra boost. Yeah, yeah. like right now, I can tell I have a problem because if I look at my index of my blog, it's all over the map. It's like posts about smartwatches and posts about, you know, fire phone and posts about pigeonholing yourself as a freelancer to drive more business. You know, there's like ditching hourly. There's all kinds. It's just all over the map. And looking down it, you'd be like, this dude's totally schizophrenic. And of course, everybody's interested in lots of things and has opinions about lots of things. So it makes sense for me to blog there. It's my name. But from a sales standpoint, it just doesn't work for me. 
Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, I know that's that advice certainly heard often and that you've even given often on the show, uh, and that seems to be you know, what, what the most successful consultants say, which is focus on something. Like, the, the narrower you get, the better. And so I'm, as part of this rebranding, redoing my website and everything, I'm going to be not necessarily taking off, but certainly reduce, very, very, very greatly reducing the amount that I say that I do, say, development or project for people, I'll be much more on the training thing. At the same time, like, I don't want to sort of remove it completely, but I can't imagine moving on to a different site. So, I don't know, I hope I won't penalize too much either by potential uh, you know, clients or by, by Google for that. The way I've been handling it, maybe this would be helpful to you, is that um, I will. I, I took all of the non-mobile strategy stuff out of my site navigation, and there's like no. If you go to the homepage, there's no way to link into any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And what I do is I just, just like in social media, I drive people to those landing pages. So you can't just come to my site and browse around and find out that I also do coaching. Instead, I would like do a mailing list or do a tweet. That drives specific people say, "Hey, you in, are you know are you a dev shop? Do you want to own a dev shop? You should check this out." So it drives them right to that page, and if they like navigate away from it, there's no way back. So it's awkward, but that's the way I've been handling it. So on a similar vein, then I have DevChat.tv, which is about programming, and you know I have the different podcasts on there, and I'd like to be blogging about programming stuff. Should I put that blog under DevChat.tv, something like DevChat.tv/blog? Or should I separate it out as uh, kind of a personal brand? Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, it all depends on relevance to the audience you're attracting. Uh huh. So if the blog posts all hang together as interesting to the people that are attracted to that site or that that hub, I guess, then I suppose it, it makes sense. I think as long as it hangs together. But if it's stuff that you know, if you like go to the site and I'm only interested in one out of ten posts, then that's a little bit less that maybe should be split out. It depends on the topics, really. Like certain topics are going to appeal to everybody, like business type stuff. I imagine is going to appeal to everybody. Mm-hmm. But if you did like a deep post on, I don't know, Meteor JS or like you know some subtle thing about Active Record, tons of people aren't going to care about that. So I, right. I guess it's like that. Maybe you could handle that with tagging and stuff, but you'd be surprised actually. Like I wrote, I guess it was like back in the summer, a whole series on. Arrays in PostgreSQL. Like, okay, like, you know, like okay, that's kind of you know interesting to me. You know, I, I figured out some stuff. Might be interesting to other people. Those are consistently those articles, the top hits on my blog, unless something goes on social media or something. Mm-hmm. There's clearly a need for certain very niche topics. Now the thing is, I like having that because it means okay, I can do things well, so I'm good for training, and like it fits into the portfolio of training that I do. But it's sort of surprising sometimes to see how these interesting things to you can actually be interesting to a steady stream of other people. It is interesting, but if it doesn't tie into your main content, it's not helpful. Like the Fair n- enough. Oh. The, the number one page on my site is for, I don't, do you guys even know about the Jonathan's card thing, that Starbucks card? I found it like no. online within the last few weeks joining the podcast. Tell about this is wild sounding. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to hijack the questions here. It looks like we're getting more questions, but it's relevant. Uh, in 2011, I got a Starbucks gift card, and long story short, I took a picture of the barcode on the back, and I posted it online so that anybody could use it. And I set up a Twitter feed and a Facebook page for it. It was called Jonathan's Card, and people could just go into Starbucks and show a picture of the card to the barcode scanner, and it would pay for their coffee or whatever. 
and it totally blew up. It was like in mainstream media internationally. It was on CNN. I was interviewed live on MSNBC. It was a pretty big deal. And that's still by far the most traffic page on my site, but it does absolutely nothing for me in a business sense. The second most traffic page on my site, I randomly posted the user agent string for Windows Phone 7.5 web browser, and it's like the second most busy page on my site. It has very little to do with my business. So maybe I could somehow, I mean, I could look at that and say, like, geez, maybe I should go back to that stuff, somehow try and capitalize on that traffic I'm getting. But, I mean, yours sounds like it's, it's, it's pretty closely related, so it doesn't seem like a bad thing, but it's easy to have, like, a really popular page that has very little to do of, of interest with your target market. I mean, because ultimately, True. your site's not just up there for fun. You're trying to get conversions of some kind. So, sign up for my email list, buy my ebook, buy my book, get my video course. It's not just there for fun. So, you know, it's like, right. is, is it working or working for or against your conversions? I don't know. Right. Well, every so someone who you know calls me from Postgres, so I'm I don't know I, I, my my guess is that's contributing, but if it's a direct contributor, is a bit more tenuous. It doesn't sound too far afield. I mean, that seems like a good one. I'm just saying that it could be you could have ones that are huge traffic generators that do nothing for you. That I think that's right. It's easy to be provocative online and get lots of people and you know hate mail and so forth. And exactly, that doesn't really help. Yeah, exactly. All right, next question. As a freelancer, a designer has a portfolio, but as a programmer, do you think your blog, user group, and conference speaking is enough, or do you need to have open source to help back up your work? Obviously, it depends on the person hiring knows what GitHub is or not. I'm thinking about Screencast to add a, a more visible portfolio items since it's not easy to show code by itself. Thoughts? I have thoughts. Yeah, I want to hear question. you guys' thoughts. That's a great question. Now go ahead. So when I was first going freelance, I was running a video series called Teach Me to Code, which was screencasts on how to build stuff. Uh, the most popular video series, which incidentally I didn't record, it was the person who ran Teach Me to Code before me did that video series, but I got all the credit for it when it came down to people calling and asking about it. And that was how to build a Twitter clone in Rails. And it really paid off. Um, what happened was I was making the videos and, and the other videos, you know, the Twitter clone videos, they were all aimed at programmers. But the way that it worked out was that people who weren't programmers would do a Google search for Twitter clone or Twitter clone in Rails, and they would find the videos, and they would watch like an hour and a half's worth of building a Twitter clone in Rails, and then they would decide, oh, this guy knows what he's doing, and then they would hire me. Mm. And so you can do that. Another thing that I'm looking at doing right now because I'm, I'm looking at splitting off part of my consulting website to specifically treat Spree because I seem to be getting requests and requests and requests and requests, lots of them, for Spree. And so what I'm looking at doing is actually putting up a website that is all about Spree. And so obviously then if I want to do video content, I could do video content on how to use Spree because that directly targets my customers you know, or how to set up an e-commerce store with Rails, or how to set it up quickly, and, you know, things like that, how to add this feature into Spree. And eventually it'll get to the point where they don't want to do it themselves. They want to hire somebody who actually knows how the system works. And so I can definitely see that as well uh, as far as video and stuff goes. And I found that the way that video visually demonstrates to somebody who doesn't know about code, it really works out nicely. Because 
they take one look, they can see that you're doing something, and then you show them the result, and they can see that that's the result they want and that you're capable of delivering it. So it, it's definitely a viable medium. I don't know if it is the media that you need to use or not, but it's definitely a good idea. Yeah, I second that motion big time. I think screencasts are a great way for coders to demonstrate their expertise. The tricky thing with video is it's a little tougher to link into and it's a little tougher to scan. Mm -hmm. and it's not as shareable in that way. I mean, obviously you can share videos very easily, but if they're an hour and a half long and you know I'm watching it and I want to share like minute 35 with someone, you can do it on YouTube, but it's not the most obvious thing in the world. I've had a lot of success with screencasts on my own and through O'Reilly, and I think I mean, that's the way I like to consume that kind of information personally. And to specifically to the freelancer's question, I think having open source stuff in GitHub is really important, or let me put it this way, I'm, I'm often in a position to hire developers either full-time or part-time, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't care where they went to school. I couldn't care less where they went to school, but if they've contributed to Linux or you know, or whatever, or they contribute to anything, that I want to know. And I'll go look at their commits. To me, that is far more interesting and far more telling than, you know, I graduated from Brown with a CS degree. I think that's true, but I think GitHub is for the more technical audience. So the Jonathan Starks out there that are, who are going to be hiring developers or making a referral, mm -hmm. you know, it makes a lot of sense. But, you know, for the lay person that just needs a social network built or something like that, they don't necessarily have what it takes to go look at your stuff on GitHub and know if it's any good. And so the screencasts help with that. And so I, I think it just depends on which audience you want to target and whether or not you can tell them to just go look at your code. Yeah, totally fair. And I, I completely agree with that. I th it's, GitHub is probably more of a beneficial place to have your portfolio, if you will, if you are selling yourself one way or, to, or another to like a CIO or CTO or... Mm -hmm a development manager who's going to have some experience with that kind of stuff. But yeah, if you're trying to sell your services to a dentist, that's totally worthless. They just want to know about results. Yep. You know, what results can you provide for me and how much do you cost, basically? Yeah, but there's one thing that I think you missed is, you know, your stuff could be open source, but it could also be you open source a service. So there's like a web app you built and it's like, hey, use this web app to help figure out dentistry cost or whatever. And it, you can show the code for it. So, like, a dentist can come in and use it, like, oh, this is useful, and then at the bottom it says developed by, you know, XYZ. Oh, there you go. That's useful. Or if, like, a CTO of, like, a dentist conglomerate or whatever you, whatever you want to call it, they can come in and see, like, oh, this was developed by someone, click through, find out, like, oh, look, the code is actually here. Hey, this developer knows what he's doing. You know, let's hire him that way. Um, yeah, Because that's definitely. a lot of the stuff I had with Fredmine was I had around 100 or something open source projects on GitHub, but it was useful to me because like, I would get clients and I'd get them because they are already using a dozen of my plugins. You know, So they're like, hey, he's written basically everything custom we have in here. It's going to be a good idea to hire him for this, this custom one we want. And so you know, virtually the fact it was open source, but it was open source as in it was useful, not in that the code was shared. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Mm -hmm. and, and that's been my experience as well, where people who have created jQuery plugins or uh, Rails Gems, I've contacted the developer directly and said, hey, can I hire you for you know, a block of hours or, or whatever? I, give me a price for doing some custom development or even helping me integrate these multiple things that are not playing well together. So yeah, definitely plus one there. 
And I think screencasts, like, I think it depends on the person. Personally, I don't like them. I won't watch most of them. I just, it's the amount of time invested for it. I know a couple of my clients don't could care less too. And it might just be, you know, the type of market you're going after, the type of, you know, client you want, that sort of thing. If you do do screencasts or anything like that, I would try to have another medium, like have screencasts in a transcript or screencasts in your code. Like, mm-hmm. don't put all of your eggs into like, I'm going to put everything on YouTube as screencasts, like have variety there. And that also gives you a chance to kind of link to different things. The tricky thing is like screencasts show that you know how to code, but like we were talking about earlier, most clients don't care that you know how to code. They care that you're going to get them results. Um, I think if you can do like an interview, video, audio, or even just text, like case study or something with a past client about before we did this project, my business made $1 million. After we did this project, my business made $10 million. Like that's going to be worth 100 screencasts about putting together some code. Yeah, I totally agree there. And I would even extend that to say that you know, the question starts off with as a freelancer designer has a portfolio, which I presume to mean like a, something on Dribble or a bunch of pretty pictures of websites they built. I would argue that even designers should be doing case studies. And it's less about how pretty the interface is and more about how you doubled somebody's revenue by changing the label on a button because you're like a UX expert. So, yeah, completely agree with case studies. That's I don't know. It's not that easy to get case studies done, though. It's a lot easier to do a screencast, but your point is well taken. Yeah, but I think that's part of it is, like, every developer I know to links to GitHub and has some tech stuff about their about projects they've worked on or whatever, but having, like, sitting down with your client doing a case study or building an app that's, like, useful to your clients that's free or whatever, like, that's a bit above and beyond, and that kind of can set you out and make you look different than your competition, so... I mean, but it comes back to like, what do you want to do? What like, what do you have time to do? What what do you have the ability to do too? Because mm-hmm. you, know, you have dreams of doing all this stuff and building a big empire around it, but you don't have the capability. It's not going to work. Right. So in terms of time and availability, so I actually have very very few contributions to open source. I mean, I use GitHub with my clients, but I've just been so busy over the years between consulting and teaching and kids and PhD and forth that you know, if someone looked at my portfolio on GitHub, they'd say like, really. Um, and maybe that's something that I have to change, but I don't think it's going to be changing in the coming month at least because I've got so many other things going on. Um, so I would say that not having a portfolio on GitHub, even if you're doing development work, isn't necessarily a, you know, it's, it's not a killer, but it helps to demonstrate in some other way through some other media. So I have done webinars, I've done a lot of writing, I've done a lot of blogging, and I would say the combination of these things tends to, in some case, it seems to have uh, convinced people, or enough people at least for my purposes, to come and work with me. And I wouldn't be surprised if part of that is also, at least to some degree, although I need to dial this more, is what Eric's saying, which is not just technical ability, but also the ability to communicate, first of all, and see beyond the technical needs and see it in terms of you're building a technical solution to a bigger problem. Yeah, I mean, thinking about it, the, the webinars and screencasts I've done have, have been all about attracting web developers to training. So I would think that I would think that it would be a pretty useful thing for you because it is probably going to be watched by actual developers who then, you know, say to their boss, hey, you know, can we get this guy in for training because he knows what he's talking about. All right, should we hit the next one? Sure. Absolutely. If you are preparing to go freelance, you're wanting to show you're an expert and build clientele. You have some good long-term customers for the existing business. How do you recommend getting a testimonial from them that you could use while at the current business? And when you go freelance without compromising the business relationships, do you try and steer clear of any links to old work or just direct them to LinkedIn so it's obviously linked to you and avoids complication? 
I think what they're asking is if you're getting ready to go freelance, you've worked with customers for your current employer, how do you get testimonials from them so that you can go out and build clientele uh, with some social proof? Obviously a Reuven question. <laughs> Look, it's first first and foremost, I've discovered, like even a few years ago, I asked a number of my clients for testimonials. And it turns out that many large companies, at least, have strict policies, or at least this is what people told me, they have strict policies of not endorsing. So I asked like the various heads of training at Cisco in Israel, hey, you know, you keep inviting me back, can I get a testimonial? And they said, oh, no, we're not allowed to do that. I asked Apple, and they were like, oh, no, we're allowed to do that. So like, we're, we're assuming here that you've got people who could, in theory, endorse you. And, yes, it's tricky. Look, I've got a, an easier situation, I think, than what the, the question asker is asking here because they've got a full-time job, and the contacts were made through their full-time job, and they're planning to go independent. So it might be seen, to some degree, as a stab in the back, um, as opposed to me, where I've been a freelancer before. I've threw someone else. So I think it's a, a little, at least I'd like to justify myself by saying it's a little easier to deal with. One easy way, I think, to start off doing it is indeed to get the recommendations on LinkedIn, right? Because then they're endorsing you. Wow, we were so glad to have, you know, Doshmo working with us. He did such a fantastic job. And endorsements on LinkedIn are a pretty reasonable, regular thing to do. And then when you're independent, you might be able to roll that into or turn that into recommendations for you personally. And that might sort of smooth the transition a little bit. But look, at some point, if you've got a full-time job and you're thinking of, for lack of a better term, stealing clients from your current employer, like, you're going to get angry. <laughs> and or you need to talk to them. And whether you decide to initiate that or they will come at you with pitchforks and, you know, torches, is sort of up to you and your relationship with them. But it's a conversation you should have, and I would argue that you should, pro you should probably initiate it rather than coming after you and being angry. Well, there's another facet to it. I mean, it's not just like trying to steal the clients. It could be like the client and your previous employer have a, they have a happy relationship, but they yeah. enjoyed working with you. So maybe you can like actually get it on LinkedIn is a good thing. I've had clients do that, but maybe you can get like the actual client to say, you know, hey, we enjoyed working with Joe while he worked at Acme Development Company. Um, he was a great developer, very thoughtful, easy to communicate with. So it's. It's a testimonial not about working with your freelancing business, but it's a testimonial about you personally and your work ethics or whatever. That might be a good way to kind of get some of the benefit without actually like stepping on people's toes or like burning bridges. Because the thing is, a client's going to want to know, like, is this business that you're running a good thing? Like, am I going to be safe, you know, giving you my money? But they also want to know, like, are you going to be able to get the job done? And a personal testimonial can kind of happen on that side. It's kind of like if you do uh, resumes and stuff like that with references. There's references of like people you worked with, but also personal like character references. Yeah. One other thing I want to point out is there are a couple of different levels to this. One is is I'm going to go out and do what the company I currently work for does. In which case, I think Eric's advice is you know pretty good. I would just be straight up with your employer. If you think they're gonna, you know, if their head's gonna explode. When you go in and you say, I'm going out on my own and I'm going to do what you do, then sure, you may have to temper that and things like that. But I found that most of the employers that I worked for, they liked me, they liked the work I did. I wasn't going to go out and freelance in what they were doing. I was going to go out and freelance in what I do, which is write code. And so for the most part, they were just like, okay, this is just another job transition. Instead of going and working at company A, he's going to go work for company himself. And so in that case, and, and it really does, it depends on the company, it depends on the management, it depends on whether they have their heads screwed on straight. But if they're reasonable, reasonable, reasonable people, 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 
uh, just go ahead and tell them what you're doing, and then you know make sure that they're okay with you, you know, asking their employer or their customers for feedback, or for for referrals or references that you can use when you start things out. And if they have a reason for it, they'll tell you, you know, no, you can't, and here's why. And if they don't have a problem with it, then they'll tell you that. And you know, just be respectful. But uh, yeah, some some of these companies are run by people that really just don't understand how the world works and understand that there's always some level of reciprocity. And so they're going to hear you say, I'm leaving and I want to tell all of the customers. And then they're going to have a problem with that. You know, be that that you're either going to steal them or that they're going to leave the, you know, leave the company because you're the person that they've dealt with and been happy with. So, you know, as much as you can, you know, just couch it in terms of, hey, look, you know, I'd really appreciate getting this help. And if you can't do it, then find out what the terms are, figure out whether or not you want to burn the bridges, and then maybe approach them after you leave. But just make sure that everything's on the up and up so that you don't cause yourself any problems and cause them any problems mm-hmm. if you can help it. Don't be sneaky. It's yeah. a short it, life, and it's a small world. And being sneaky is not going to make it look good. So Yeah, it will come back around. Yeah, you'll regret it. As much as you think you need that case study or testimonial on your website, it's not worth being sneaky. So just be straight up with people and have the uncomfortable conversation. I've gone through this transition myself. I left a firm and took some clients with me, and we worked out a financial arrangement that made everybody happy. Mm-hmm. And then after I'd been doing work for those clients for uh, six months on my own or whatever, then get a test. You know, it's not a, when that project finally ends. Is hey, hey, you know, could you give me a referral? Could you give me testimonials? That kind of thing. And it's totally normal then because you've been working with them solo for a while. Yeah, and if they are going to leave and find you, even if you don't tell them anything or things like that, just again, just be straight up. Look, I'm not going to advertise to your customers, but I'm letting you know that this is where I'm going, and if they approach me, then... That's a good one. I see chat the person who asked, uh, Gavin, I believe it is, said, you know, not stealing, just using their positive feedback. So I, I really don't think there's an issue. If you did a good job getting positive feedback or recommendations for someone for... The work that you did, and what you said, you know, maybe mentioning what, what firm you were at, you know, given a little bit of a hat tip there, I don't think that would necessarily be bad. Okay, that could serve everyone's purposes. Yeah, the issue is is that some people are going to hear, I'm leaving and I'm going to steal customers. Right. So. Oh, the other thing is, there are cities, states, countries, where you might have signed a contract saying you won't do that. And I know you ask like it's, it's all over the map in terms, like literally, I guess, in terms of what is acceptable and what's not. But if you sign a contract saying you know you won't take customers, like you should honor that because the last thing you need is not only to be seen as sneaky, but also then to be dealing with court and legal fees and lawsuits and whatnot and and just threats and unpleasantness. Mm. Yeah, in the U.S., it's a non-compete. Yeah, but if if you said you weren't going to take customers, then don't take customers. Yeah, totally. Just, just right. be honest. <laughs> Forget the, the court and everything. Just be a straight-up honest person. Because yeah, the other thing is, is it will kill your reputation. If their company you worked for before can't trust you, then why should your clients? Right. Just, just be honest. Well said. All right, next question. I don't know if this is a comment or a question. We were talking about this before, but my thought is if you do a blog, create screencasts, and, and active on GitHub, etc., it would put you in the top 10% right there, though, right? Most developers are dark matter developers. You can't see or hear them, but they're still there. That's a Scott Hanselman reference is what he's saying there. Yeah, so Scott Hanselman says that most 
developers or dark matter developers. They just they work in a company. They don't put themselves out there. They don't put any content out there. And yeah, so if you're if you're putting content out there, you are definitely going to rise above the people who are not. And then it's just a matter of how much competition there is versus how much demand there is. Yeah, it's a difference of being of having expertise and being a recognized expert. Yep. So sharing your passion awesome. online early and often, however you do it, is going to be better off. You'll be better off than if you didn't do that. And there's probably a dozen, at least a dozen, common ways to do that. And we listed off like half a dozen of them previously. Yeah, I, I love this idea of you know the dark matter developers. I was just talking to someone yesterday who was saying to me. You know, like this. It turns out the Python is like everywhere. I, I, you know, I can't believe it. And you know, he started asking me, sort of, where, where is it being used? And I told him that when I initially started dealing with training in Python, I was sure, absolutely sure, that I was going to be dealing with like you know, 25 to 30 year olds, maybe a little younger, doing web applications because I'm a web guy, and so I saw that facet of it. And I was completely unexposed to the fact that there are probably even most of the Python developers out there are working in big companies doing administration or automation or all sorts of stuff that we don't necessarily think of as, as glamorous, but which is necessary, and, you know, lots of people out there do that. And so your market might be inside, you know, for something might be inside one of those companies or those types of companies, and trying to get them to notice you, it's not always obvious how to get that to happen. But if you put yourself out and you're always being mentioned, they will find you, hopefully, and, and then want to hire you in the, the best case. Yeah, straight up content marketing. Yep. Yeah, and it's funny. My wife was working at one company for at least 18 months and then found out that they're actually using Redmine and they actually knew of me, but like they didn't connect the dots like that I was related to her and this and that. So like there's a lot of a lot of stuff that just kind of goes on behind the scenes. But yeah, I mean, you can, you know, you can figure out like what your competition's doing content marketing wise or content wise or whatever and you know, see if there's a way to get above them because I don't. I don't think it matters if you're in the top ten percent or not. It's are you above the people that potential clients are going to see? Like, mm-hmm. are potential clients seeing these six companies who are like the top point point zero zero one percent, and they're getting all of the work, and anyone below those six, you know, they're not getting anything. Like, I think that's what matters more than you're above ninety percent of the other people. So I mean, do what your competition's doing, or do it in a way where you stand out above them. Well, and yeah, focus down on a on a vertical that they're not focused on. So, like a lot of companies are still very generalist focused right now. Like we focus on Python or we do Drupal or or whatever. And if you niche that down to we do Drupal for dentists, or that's a terrible example because dentists probably don't know that you do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you if you niche down to a vertical and say we solve these kind of expensive problems for dentists and we happen to use Drupal, then that's gonna get you up in the search results. Yeah, the example that John Sanmez always uses is, let's say that you need work done on your garbage disposal in your kitchen. And so you go and you look in the phone book. I don't know why anyone has a phone book. But anyway, you go look in the phone book and you, you see ABC plumbing, you know, plumbing drains and clogs, and garbage disposal fix-it guy. I mean, who are you going to call? Yeah, you're totally calling garbage disposal fix-it guy, even though he's a plumber who probably does yeah. a million other things. Right, he's he's totally capable of unclogging your toilet or whatever too, but your particular need is garbage disposal guy. So is he in the top 10 of plumbers? Who cares? Is he in the top 10 of people who get called when their garbage disposal is busted? You bet. And here's the interesting thing. If you specialize in garbage disposals, what's going to happen is you get a lot of garbage disposal repair calls, and you can start to optimize for garbage disposal repair with special tools or maybe things you create on your own, special expertise, and you can 
become super familiar with every popular model of garbage disposal, the average generalist plumber can't do that. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing all this garbage disposal work, you're going to get better at it than anybody. Like you will actually become way better at it than anybody else possibly could. And therefore you could even lower prices and still make more profit than no one will ever touch you. Like no regular plumber will ever touch you for garbage disposal work. Which reminds me, we need some garbage disposal work done, so if you know anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just check out a phone book. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let me get that yellow pages. Hold on. Another way you can also look at that is not just like niching like what industry you serve in, but like what kind of content you create. So, you know, maybe you want to do screencasts, like that's where your passion is. And if you get better and keep working at it, you know, you're going to be the screencast guy for garbage disposal repair or whatever. You know, instead of focusing on, I'm going to do screen class and blogs and a podcast and I'm going to, you know, do all these other things and you don't ever become an expert in one medium. So, you know, you can also kind of niche in that way too and, you know, that can make you stand out in that in the, another aspect. That's interesting. I never yeah, thought of that. It actually kind of reminds me, I had to fix my washer, what, a month or so ago because it was, it was just not working. And it turned out that the problem was is that it wasn't draining properly because a sock had gotten sucked into the drain hose, right? And go, go figure, you know. But I wound up tearing my whole washer apart, go. putting it back together. And, you know, I watched a couple of videos on YouTube, and I kept looking at my wife and saying, maybe I should just hire somebody for this. And I'll tell you, if that guy had been local and said, hey, you know, if you're in the Utah County area, you know, you can bet that I probably would have just called him up and said, can you come just do this? I can definitely see that you can rip the other washer apart and make it work, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't care how far it would be. I would call anyone rather than trust myself to open my washing machine and watch YouTube videos. It would not end well in my case. Well, I work on my cars, too, and it's just wow. a matter of I've hammered on enough things to where I can at least diagnose most problems and get an idea of where to start looking. And, yeah, the rest of it, I mean, it, it's all bolts and nuts and screws and clamps and stuff. And so you just you figure out how it all works. But, yeah, you know, at some point it's like, okay, that's going to be like a four-hour job, and I just don't want to do it. <laughs> I did actually fix my dryer recently with a YouTube video, but I wouldn't touch a washing machine. Oh, I'm proud of myself. I'm, not, I'm not handy at all. Not handy. I married into handy. <laughs> my father-in-law is really handy and yeah so whenever the car breaks down he comes up and we work on it together but yeah cool. wow it's from the 70s I'm guessing uh no <laughs> you actually work on a modern car personally uh huh damn that's impressive the ruby, ruby chops probably come in handy oh totally you gotta reprogram the thing <laughs> well if yeah. you're getting an error code it'll tell you where the problem is yeah, there you go logging yeah. Love it. So I'm totally rethinking my blogging strategy now. Because <laughs> I'm just getting back into blogging. In fact, here's a question for you. I have teachmetocode.com, which I haven't migrated over, but it's all in the same vein as devchat.tv. Of course, none of the content on there is current. I think the last blog post was like December of 2012. And the last video or podcast episode on there is older than that. And so I, I want it all in the same place just because that's where people go to get my content. But I have a bunch of old blog posts and things. Should I just import all that over to devchat.tv, or should I should I leave it where it is on the ugly WordPress that's set up? Because I don't want to maintain that system, too. Is devchat.tv going to have a blog for articles? So, so that's the other end of things that I'm debating as to whether or not I want to put a blog on there. 
because the content is diverse enough to where I don't think that, you know, the JavaScript folks are going to be interested in the Ruby blog posts and things like that. But at the same time, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be, so I'm going to be building and selling products that are, you know, that focus on developers, but... Web developers. And iOS developers. And freelancers, incidentally, because I have this show too. But that's not uh, a small niche. That's not a focus, <laughs> right? And I'm gonna focus on I'm gonna focus on three totally different things, right? Exactly. So, so should I set up three different blogs, or you should make it easy to consume for the people who are going to care about the one thing that they care about. So maybe that's tagging. Maybe it's different RSS feeds. Maybe it's different domains. It's kind of hard to say, but. I mean, it's all developer stuff, so at least it's yeah. the same realm. But I think people are, like, I wouldn't, I'm at best a Ruby novice, but I love JavaScript. I could care less about Ruby stuff. I don't want that in my feed. Right. So, but I want to know everything about everything in JavaScript. New stuff in the DOM, ECMO 6, mm-hmm. Node, everything. So, I mean, if you really want to start questioning things, maybe you should pick one. Yeah. The other thing is at least make it easy for people to self-segment and pick mm-hmm. one or the other. Right. Yeah, the podcasts, I feel like, are a little bit different because they're all in their own feeds, and yes. that's how people consume the stuff anyway. Subscribe to just one topic. Right. And so maybe yeah, and I should how many people actually go to the site to listen to the podcast? I mean, they're consuming it in a different medium where it is segmented. Yeah. I mean, one thing you can do, like... I don't, have you seen those planet sites before where it's basically a website that aggregates like a bunch of other content? You can make one of those for yourself and aggregate it from DevChatTV, TeachMeToCode, all, all of the sites. So if someone actually mm-hmm. cares about, I want to follow what Chuck does, they can follow that site. But if it's like just the standard, I want to learn about JavaScript stuff or I want to learn about freelancing, like they can be in their own little domain or own little section of something. Mm-hmm. And it's not, they're not polluted by stuff. But once people like know you better, they can kind of opt in for everything you have. Yeah, that is interesting because I can see a Chuck fan following that's just like, I want to know everything that's going on in the world of Chuck. And so I, I wouldn't say don't make that available, but you just have to make it easy for them to... Pick and choose the things that they care about. Yeah. And now you got me thinking about it. Maybe I should take my main site, which is JonathanStark.com, and that becomes JDog World. And then I have a mobile strategy site, like MobileStrategyConsulting.com or whatever, and push all that stuff over there and just split it out. And then my sort of namesake.com becomes like the search result for my name, which makes sense. Well, that's like I put in the chat. Like that's what Michael Port did. Uh, his site's changed recently, but it's like he's an author. He's a business coach. I think he does public speaking now, and he has like some software partnerships. Mm-hmm. So when you go to his site, it like talks about all of the different aspects of him. Like like oh, I'm interested in the public speaking. It shoots you over to a different site. Yeah. Still his stuff, but it's like it's isolated. So if you're just looking for public speaking, Michael Port, like you're on this own site for it, it's own calls to action. Mm. A couple of years ago I wanted to do that. I haven't completely done it on my own personal site, but you know, that's kind of how I'm starting to group things is have it separate and then, you know, if someone cares about everything and is, you know, the whole thing, they can mm. find where that is. Mm. Yeah. I love that idea now that it's come up. I'm definitely gonna do that. It's a it's a tough migration to do, but that's obvious now that you say it. Right, so it seems like also I should keep my blogging somewhat focused to whatever area I want to be the expert in. It makes it easier for you to be the expert because yes. if you're if you're trying to because you know a lot of this I notice every time I change so over the years I've sort of changed my pigeonhole like step by step by step mm-hmm. and 
every time I do it, it completely changes the blog feeds I follow, the podcasts I listen to, the mailing lists I sign up for, completely. Because there's so much stuff out there, you can't keep up with all of it. So if you have to pick something, you're going to pick something that's specific to your niche. I have like this really important conference coming up. I'm speaking at a the gold standard chain restaurant technology conference next month in Vegas. And for the last six weeks, I have not read, I mean 90% of the posts I've been reading and the mailing lists I've been actually not deleting are related to chain restaurant technology. So I'm like immersed in the language of it and the certain kinds of restaurants are scared of Foodler, other kinds of restaurants love Foodler. Like all of this like, you'd think niching down to a very specific vertical would become boring, but it just opens up this whole world of insane deep, it's just deep instead of wide, but it's just as much information. Mm -hmm. And so you end up with this deep expertise on the subtleties of the industry, which as subtle as they may be, are incredibly important to the people in the industry. And from the outside, it's just like, ah, it's difference. Drive through, take out, who cares? But there's like giant difference, obviously. But I don't know. I can't imagine being an expert on iOS and web development. It's impossible. Right. I mean, I've seen people that are like experts at integrating, you know, a special type of web development into iOS. And like, that's all they do. They don't make yep. iOS apps. They don't make like normal HTML looking apps. They just do the API technology, and that's that's their expertise, and it's plenty big enough for them. Mm -hmm. I yeah, was myself that was like FileMaker Web. I did FileMaker for years, and then I said, no, I want to do web, and I became the FileMaker Web guy for like two years. And mm -hmm. I just, like I would go up against anybody in the world at the time over the expertise on FileMaker Web. Everything about the server technology, you couldn't stump me. I mean, it's totally gone now, but that is such a it's like the it's like a niche inside of a niche. It's these teeny weeny little thing. But since I was so into the industry, I was aware that it was important to enough people to keep me busy for two years. Yeah, I guess the other question then becomes: Let's say that I decide to make my primary focus web development. Do I drop the iOS podcast? That's up to you. Why are you doing the podcast? Is it because you're learning and having fun, or is it because? You, know, you wanted to do conversions and bring you in work leads. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, fun. I mean, like, I, mean, I have a mobile development because I just haven't had time. But I keep thinking, yes, this would be fun to do. But I cannot imagine a situation in which I would classify myself as a professional mobile developer because there's just way too much to learn for me to get into that. Yeah. I mean, in the truest sense, like, you should wake up, eat, shower, and then focus completely on the one thing you're going to work on and do that for the rest of your life and be an expert in that. But in reality, like, we have too many varieties. Like, I care about programming, but I care about business and running and writing. And so if I have products where I write about stuff that's not, like, it's kind of tangential to my thing or completely unrelated, it might not actually benefit my business overall, but it's going to broaden my life and make it more interesting, more fulfilling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe you do have, like, a personal catch-all blog that's like, this is just random stuff I'm going to throw on here. And that's for, like, your true fans to kind of read and, and learn about or whatever. Um, and the iOS podcast, like, maybe that goes on there. And it's like, you know, only the people who truly care about what you want or have an interest in this topic are going to care about it. But if it's something you want to do, you do it. And then there's yeah. also the other thing, like, how much is it going to cost to maintain it? Like, if, it's, right. if you see yourself getting into iOS as an expert in 12 months, you know, I know it takes you a couple hours a week to put the effort in now. It might make sense to kind of put on maintenance and just let it go until you actually mm -hmm. get into it deeper. Yeah, my other podcast is Complete Labor of Love. It has nothing to do with business. Very tangentially related to business. It's for me to explore ideas and have a conversation with a good friend. And I'd be shocked if it ever turned into any work. 
But I know that, and so if it was taking up too much time during the week, it would have to be deprioritized. Right. Should we take this other question on here? What about content marketing and SEO with having so many sparse sites versus pooling? One thing I want to say is whatever we say now is going to get dated. SEO, which pretty much means Google nowadays, but you know, there's other stuff. It changes so much. It used to be having a dozen small sites was beneficial when they're really focused. Now having a large site, you know, with different categories and stuff is better. It changes so fast. Like I would consider SEO literally like the last 10% of what you need to care about. Mm-hmm. Like make the content, make an audience, do all that stuff. And then if you have time and you still need to optimize some more, then I would start worrying about SEO and seeing like what effects you have there. That's really true. I mean, the people who keep coming back are the people that you're going to sell to. Yeah, those are the buyers. I, I totally agree with that. I think SEO is a very desktop web concept. And as mobile becomes more predominant, it's more about social, it's more about email lists, it's more about reaching out to individuals directly and just like smack them in the face with, this is what I do. And they're like, damn, that's exactly what I need. Like that's the reaction that you're trying to get from people. And then your site becomes like a secondary thing, like this old model, the desktop model, where everything interesting was happening in that rectangle on your desktop screen, the web browser, was they would search, they would click on a link, and they would go in. But there's so many other ways to discover things now than just like a search for a problem. And that's definitely still a big one, but it's not not the only one at all. Mm-hmm. So there's tons of ways to reach out to people and pushing them to, to content that's relevant, I think is way more important than sending them to a giant cloud of loosely related information. Like that, That's everything. Everywhere you go on the internet is this loosely related cloud of information. And, you know, the stuff that really clicks with people, I think if, if the goal is conversions, if the goal is to get more business, then appealing really, really narrowly, you almost can't over niche. You almost can't over focus. And having just like, you know, the, like the, the, I kind of reject the notion of this question, which is that a focused site has to be sparse. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how, I'm, I, if I'm reading the question properly, a focus site does not have to be sparse. A focus site could be incredibly in-depth. Pulling a bunch of crap together that's loosely related does not create more value for me as a reader, you know, just because there's more stuff on there. And however it's going to be, however that will affect SEO to me is like, I don't know, it's like the last thing I think about. Well, another thing to think about is there's, you know, like we're talking about dark matter developers, like you don't see them and all that. There's dark matter businesses where their site might be one single HTML page. It's not even like WordPress. It's just HTML, but they're million, billion-dollar businesses, and, you know, they might work online. They might be offline. You know, they might communicate through email or, like, whatever, but the size of your site doesn't actually determine the quality. And, I mean, if you're doing freelancing, like, there's a different, you know, it's a different industry and all that, but I've seen, what would we, I guess, several million-dollar freelance business where it was just one single site. I know another one where in business his site just had a logo on it. There was like, hey, this this page is coming soon, and it was like that for years. And then there's, you know, huge freelancing or agency sites with like hundreds and hundreds of pages and multiple posts a week, you know. So there's a lot of different ways you can work with it. And I don't, that's why I think like, you know, if if you're finding enough customers or finding, you know, the audience of people you want to serve, like that's, I think that's the number you should care about more than just actual like traffic numbers. Yeah, traffic is kind of a vanity metric. John, that I really like your you know, your, your metric though, or your your sort of like, you know, if someone comes to your website and they say, "Wow, this is," and they and they can say, 
wow, this is really what I've been looking for, then that demonstrates that it's focused. And then it's a matter of, okay, how do I get those people to come to my site? But yeah, you that's just know where they hang out. Right. But like, as opposed to, you know, and, and that's never going to happen, someone who says, oh, you're interested in technology, I can take care of your technology. Because like, no one's going to say, I need someone to do technology for me. Like, I mean, they might say that, they're not going to call you and hire you. Yeah, my litmus test is whether or not there's a conference for the buyers that you're targeting. So if there's an in-person conference for FileMaker customers, then target FileMaker customers because you know where to find them. Go to the conference. Advertise in the magazines they buy, which are going to be advertised at the conference. If you're trying to pitch yourself to um, startups that are trying to grow past 10 million users, I don't know where those people hang out. Like, where do those CEOs hang out? I don't know. Maybe there's a place. Maybe it's Hacker News. I don't know. But I wouldn't know where to find them. So if there's no obvious place to find your buyer, then you might need to focus a little bit more tightly. The garbage disposal one's a good example. Like, I don't know where I would... That would be really hard for me because, like, how do I focus on people who need their garbage disposal repaired? That's really tricky. Yeah, but, I mean, here's one thing. Like, this is based out of a company I worked for as an employee. There is multiple conferences in the U.S. There's even a, I think it's a monthly or every other month magazine that comes out that is all about water purification. And we're not talking big stuff. We're talking, like, people who would deliver the five-gallon things to put in your kitchen. Like, there's like there's ads in there for this purifier is point a twentieth of a percent better than the current one. That's why you should buy this. Like, there's a huge underground industry. Well, it's not underground, but it's like most people don't see it. And that's just water purification. Yeah, there's like, millions of them. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I used to tr- – I tried to focus on doing, like, software development for – software development for email applications and try to like help businesses to, like improve their email and I couldn't find them like there's no conference for that like you could even tell like I have a hard time even describing it now like I had to abandon that niche because I just couldn't find any customers yeah you know, I know mm-hmm. it's a valuable problem I know there's a lot of people with the pain but if you can't find them it just doesn't work yeah it's like you could go into a company and they could say you know they could be having like re- this reporting solution that's just like dog slow. It takes like 20 minutes to run a report, and the problem might be that their MySQL database is set up wrong. But the owner of the company is not going to be searching for MySQL optimization experts because he has no idea or she has no idea that that's the source of the problem. They're going to be searching for stuff like make my reports faster or reports too slow. Mm-hmm. And you're never going to come to a, a SQL developer site with a search like that. And there's no conference for. I mean, the conference thing is not. The only way to find is watering holes for potential clients, but it's a great one. So if you just like look at the list of conferences that, so you say, oh, I've had all these customers over time, and huh, what do you know? Like a few of them all used to go to this same conference, whether it was CES or whatever, DevCon, whatever, and be like, okay, what kind of people are going there? And then you kind of, you're still doing the exact same thing, but you're just flipping your marketing around in a way that is going to speak their language, like for the things that they're looking for. And we've talked about it in terms of search results, but it's not just that. No matter how they land on your site, if you're speaking their language when they get there, it's going to be incredibly powerful. I don't see any more questions. Do you guys have things that we can discuss that would help you guys before we wrap up? I had a couple of extra thoughts on referrals that came up earlier. Yeah, go for it. Uh, One is to ask for them, whether it's referrals or, or testimonials. Um, when you have a client, I mean, the, the question earlier was about going from an in-house role to freelance, but if you're just already freelance, there's like a point in the project where everybody's super happy, you know, it's like close to the end, it's finally finishing, and, you know, you're 90% done, maybe there's still 90% to go, but everybody's happy, 
and uh, you know, ask for it. Say, hey, you know, referrals are a really big deal to me. Testimonies are a really big deal. Could I get you to you know write a few words you know that I could put on my mm -hmm. site? And yes, I have come across a thing where big companies they will not do that, and you just I've never found a way around that. But if you're not working with a big company, then go ahead and ask for them. You know, testimonials are great. Referrals are even better. And some, a lot of, honestly, 90% of the time, the way it happens with me is that somebody will email me something and be like, we are so stoked with the way this is going. This is already showing a big impact on our bottom line, and we're just like so happy that we did this. I'll respond like, wow, that's, that's so great to hear. I really love that. Would you mind if I quoted you on my website? Because that's like super great. And they'll turn around, and uh, I've never had somebody say no. Every once in a while, they'll edit it slightly. But, yeah, uh, the, the, the asking, like, it's elementary and trivial, right? Like, you've got to actually ask people. I mean, not necessarily if they email you such, you know, exciting stuff, but, like, I guess about a year or so ago, maybe a little more, I emailed a few of my favorite clients, and I asked them for referrals, or referrals, I asked them for testimonials that I could use on my site. And I gotta say, that was like the best week I had in a long time. Because <laughs> they such nice things. No one says such nice things to me. And all I had to do was ask. Yeah. It, it was really amazing. So it's, it's surprisingly easy and very fulfilling. Yeah. It feels yeah. awkward, kind of, but man. One other thing to throw in on that is that uh, I've had a few clients where I asked them for a testimonial, and they think that I want that one liner, right? That I'm going to put on my website. And I've had to go back to them and say, Okay, let me rephrase this. Can I get a letter of recommendation that I can quote on my website that I can take yes. excerpts out of? So then, you know, and I'm like, and here's kind of the format. You know, talk about what I did for you. Talk about the problems I solved. Talk about, you know, how you felt about it. And then, yeah, you get golden content out of that. Yeah, there's a. I was just exposed, for, actually, from one of my students to a book called The Brain Audit. Has anybody read this? No. And nope. there's a yeah. I see Eric looking at his shelf. And there's a series of like five or six questions that you can ask that give you the most unbelievable testimony, or just really natural testimony responses. But yeah, the brain audit, I think, it, it, giving them a framework to answer because I've been asked for testimonials on a lot of occasions, and if it's not, yeah, there you go. Oh, is that? No, that's the referral engine. The referral engine. Might be the same person. Maybe the same author. Probably, yeah. Is that the same author? I wish I could come up with the questions off the top of my head, but they were excellent. And I've been asked before to give testimonials, and it's like, oh, man. It's like the, in, the email that never leaves your inbox because you don't know what to say. But given a series of questions, it would be so much easier, you know, because you don't really know where to start, and you don't know how mm -hmm. much they want, if, it's, if they want long or they want a blurb, or, you know, one-liner. And it can, be, it can be a source of stress. I've, I've been stressed out by people who I'm really close with asking me for testimonials and just not knowing what to say. And... Sometimes I'll email them back and be like, what do you want me to say? I'll say whatever you want. You know, something that's true. It just, I don't know how you want it phrased, where you're going to use it. Is this for LinkedIn? Like, what's the, what's the deal? Just write it for me and I'll edit it. That kind of thing. So this framework of questions was just super, super useful. It was like five questions. It was things like, what were your objections before hiring Jonathan? Or uh, what was another one? What were... What would you tell someone else who's considering hiring him? It, there's like it was like six questions like that that were very leading and open ended, but were enough focused that you could actually come up with an answer. Another good thing you can do is you can really like kind of frame it. So especially when you get a lot of testimonials, like hearing that you're a great person is nice, but it doesn't actually help. Mm -hmm. And if you know clients have objections around, let's say that you work remotely and you get a lot of objections around that, and you're tired of fighting that objection every sales conversation. 
you could say, hey, can you give me a testimony about how easy it was to work with me even though you're halfway across the world from me? Mm, and if you get a testimony account. around that, you can use that to counter objections in your next sales call. Yes, that's, that's great. great advice. Yep. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Jonathan, do you want to do some picks? Yep, I've got uh, a couple, actually. Uh, one is the new Pebble smartwatch was announced today. I'm extremely bullish on smartwatches. I've had a, a couple Pebbles in the past. I love them. I've programmed for them. They're genius. They're the only company that understands watch wearables, in my opinion, right now. They launched a Kickstarter this morning, and within the first hour, they were over a million dollars. Oh, wow. Probably by now. I'm sure they're at six million by now. So it's going to be a big deal. So for developers, I would urge you to, first of all, buy one because they're fabulous. You can get one for 99 bucks, the old version, or you can get a new one. And uh, they're wonderful to program for. Uh, I think that it's going to be the next wave after uh, after mobile. Programming for multi-device interactions between watches and phones is going to be a big deal. So that's definitely one, Pebble, Pebble smartwatch. Another one is that IFT, or, yeah, IFTTT or IFT, released a new app today, or three new apps actually, called Do This. Uh, that's the one I really like, Do This. And what it is is a button that you can put on the home screen of your phone to do one thing. So you can do something like you tap on the button and you have it linked up in the back end uh, through if.com, which is kind of like Yahoo Pipes. It's kind of like this. You can take input from one service like Twitter or LinkedIn and pump it into another service like email or Evernote. And it's it's just this kind of event loop in the sky that waits for things to happen in one place and then like does something with the thing and sends it to another place. It's really it's pretty cool. It hasn't been super useful or practical in my opinion, even though I think it's really cool. Um, but this new application is really really interesting, where you just you link up this button to an action that is cloud based. So you could so for example, every day I got I have to give my dog I have a diabetic dog I have to give him two shots a day. And it's like a nightmare remembering whether or not I did it. Because if you give them too many shots or not enough shots, it's a problem. So now I've got this button on my home screen. Every time I press the button, it sends a timestamp into a Google spreadsheet or Google Sheet that just tells me that it just like I did it. So like if I leave the house and then I go to Starbucks to hang out, I can be like, God, did I give George a shot this morning? I can look in the spreadsheet and be like, oh, yep, there's a timestamp from this morning. So, you know, there's there's three apps. There's the, the Do This app, which basically just you press a button. That's all you can do. Another one's called uh, Do Note, I think it is, where you press the button and enter some text, and then that can push to anywhere you want. Uh, so you could send it to, you know, Gmail yourself. You could send it to Evernote. You could send it to Twitter. You could send it to Facebook status, whatever. And there's another one called uh, Do Camera where you, the only thing you do is press the button, take a picture, and it goes somewhere. So everything's pre-configured. You can only press one button. That's the entire application. I think it is so cool. It's incredibly cool. I think we're seeing an unbundling of apps, basically. Apps are kind of breaking... Functions from inside of apps are breaking outside of their walls and into these screen widgets and interactive notifications and things like Google Glass and, and the new Pebble. It's really cool. So ift.com is where you would go, ifttt.com. Awesome. Eric, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, so there's one from ItiBiz. Uh, this is Naomi Dunford. Uh, it's called On Learning and Keeping Stuff. It's a very short uh, blog post. Well, not very short. It's a short blog post. But I think if you do any kind of like learning on your own, reading, 
anything like that where you try to like learn stuff or educate yourself or train yourself, you really should read this and actually really think about kind of the activities that you're doing versus like what you're actually doing and learning. Uh, it's a it's kind of a bit of a meta thinker post, so I'll I'll put it in the links. All right, Ruben, picks. Yes, we're gonna have about another month, month and a half. He's doing this thing called a workshop or let's workshop, which gives you. Uh, links each day for potential leads, something leads. And so he's been watching or looking at the emails that people send to these potential clients, basically cold calling emails. Uh, so he came up with an ebook recently called Emails That Win You Clients, which is at emailsthatwin.com. Now, I've been doing this for a long time. I read this book and was like, oh my God, I can't believe <laughs> I made, like, yo, I made this mistake and this mistake and this mistake and this mistake. And then he was very generous and, uh, you know, he even offered to some of the people workshop, well, you know, show, show me that you're taking the advice seriously. So I sent him a sample email. He was like, ha, still too long, still bad in this way and this way and this way. <laughs> now, granted, I've been doing this, you know, for a while and so I'm, I'm able to pay my mortgage and so forth, but um, it's, it's fascinating and I'm not convinced that it's always true and it still is kind of weird to think that his style will actually win, but he's got way more cross-section of evidence than I certainly have, and I'm going to give it out and see how it works, uh, if only for the, for the sort of scientific uh, curiosity in me. In any event, I think his, his ebook is certainly, certainly worth reading and looking at, and it's a lot of food for thought in there about what are people looking for when they're looking for, say, developers or other technical people, and what are they looking for in terms of the email? And here's a hint, which is aimed mostly at myself, they're not interested in reading tons of text. It's great that you can write a lot. It's great that you can type fast. They don't care. So anyway, definitely worth looking at. Very cool. Um, I've got a couple of picks. The first one, which is relevant to uh, this uh, discussion, is uh, 80-20 Marketing by Perry Marshall. I listened to it on Audible. I need to go back and listen to it again. It was just tremendous. Just awesome. I kind of want to talk through it with some folks. Kind of like I want to talk through uh, thinking we're rich with folks. So I, I might pull something together, like some little uh, discussion group or something. Book club. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh. The other book um, that I listened to recently, or uh, that I'm listening to right now that is really good, it's called uh, Miracles and Massacres. It's by Glenn Beck. I know Glenn Beck is kind of a polarizing figure if you like or don't like specific radio talk show hosts. But these are just stories out of history, and they are awesome. So, really enjoying that. And then, um, I, I think that's all I've got this week. So, yeah. So, thanks for coming, guys. Thanks for everyone in the chat room uh, for coming and participating with this. And, yeah. I guess we'll wrap things up, and uh, we'll talk to everybody next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum.